Welcome back to Barton and Bud. I'm Barton Simmons with Bud Elliott, and we are going to do a mailbag today. Bud, we got uh, we did a little bit of a playoff preview that's coming. We're recording it right now as as like Wake Forest, I think, is like putting it on Wisconsin. That's 14-7 now. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna poke around. It look. I think we got some old questions because Apple's kind of screwing us and we're not getting the new ones in, but we're going to, we're going to dig into some old questions that are some good ones and some evergreen ones and um, play around this a little bit. Let's do it, man. Uh, As a reminder, even though Apple is screwing us as far as our ability to see the podcast review questions, uh, you can still submit your podcast reviews. Apple has assured the podcasting industry that we will eventually see them. So if you want to, you know, keep submitting those, that's awesome. Keep hitting us up with those five-star ratings and reviews always appreciated them i'm you know pretty proud we're able to get 750 in in our maiden voyage despite the fact that for a lot of the off season it wasn't you know totally certain that uh we were even going to play ball this year and i'm very glad that we did uh let's lead this thing off most of these questions came from the part of the apple podcast that we could actually see and then a couple y'all hit us up on twitter very kind of you to do so uh and this this actually referenced something that you said in the show so uh, some Miami fans disagreed with this, and some fans liked it, and others were intrigued. So let's go ahead and tackle this. And Valhalla24 writes, Hey, hearing Barton say Vatek is a better coaching job than Miami and UNC makes me wonder, what are the top tennis jobs in the country, and what are some underrated and overrated coaching jobs, and what all comes into play when considering this? All right. You, um, you want to you start or you want me to start? I got a couple in mind. All right, so it, I think top 10 is a very arbitrary number of jobs, right? Like I kind of think there are, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know that I would group it with, with 10. You know, I think 10-ish, like he asks, is, is more appropriate. There's a couple in each conference which I feel like you can win a national title if, thing, if things go right, you know. So how are we defining, how are we defining top uh, jobs? I think that's, that's a good place to start. What, what do we, it's a great question. what is our... Um, what is our criteria here? Let's just look at it first from the perspective like any job. You want to make money. You want to make sure your family's secure. You want to go a place where if you do a good job, you get recognized for doing a good job. So your expectations and definitions of success are, I would say, reasonable relative to the you know, resources of the program. But you know, all, all those things being equal, and the pay at a lot of these jobs is much better than it used to be. So it's not like one place can pay you twenty million to the head coach, and the next place can pay you two. Um, TV money has has changed the game in many ways. So like pretty much all Power Five jobs now are paying pretty damn good money. Um, but here, I think I, I think the best jobs are the ones that are that have the ability to to win it all. You know, that's not to say. Northwestern's not a great job, or Kentucky, which I think is an awesome job, given that they're very realistic about their expectations for their head coach uh, relative to their resources. Those are great jobs, in my opinion. But I do think the top ten jobs, if you're a competitor, man, like like you want to win at the highest level. You know, it's not to say you don't have to get your start somewhere and and you know somewhere a little bit lower, but don't you want to be at that top level to compete? I I think so. I. I think Bama is a top job. Ohio State is a top job. Obviously, everybody's always interested in Texas. I don't know if I'd put Texas in there. Right, because there, I think there's something about Texas that because I'm not in that Texas program that makes me wonder why why don't they win more at Texas? We we've talked about that on this show before. 
Um, Oklahoma. Oklahoma doesn't have quite the resources Texas does, but I think it has better, like, get the hell out of the way than Texas does, just lets their coaches cook. Um, for USC to still attract the talent that it does, despite all the dysfunction in that program, I think indicates it probably is still a top job and yeah, I think USC maybe the is. only one on the West Coast that I'd put there. Mm-hmm. Clemson basically saying screw you to all the other sports that they play to dump all their money into football indicates that they're they're all in on the sport of football. I think Florida's a top job. LSU's a top job. Georgia's a top job. Then I think kind of, I, I might would go I might would go Michigan in there. Because the thing about Michigan, there there is there's there they've had some issues winning it all there, but I think that they can and I think that there is a level of um I think they've shown a level of commitment to Jim Harbaugh that is encouraging for as as a as a coach looking for opportunities. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I think that there's yes, like there might be a little bit of a lower ceiling on Michigan than some of these other programs because of some of the academic uh issues and and things of that nature. But I still think the, the, the there's a little more patience there. They're, they're, they've proven than than some other places, and I would put Notre Dame in there too. I mean, Notre Dame, you are still, you, you know, wake up the echoes. Like you're still that that historic program, and yes, academic issues are are there, but like you're a nat, you're as much of a national brand as anyone in college football, and I think all that stuff still kind of matters. Do you put Penn State on the same level as Michigan? The thing with Penn State is I, I, I feel like there's geographical obstacles there. Like, it's just hard to get to State College. Yeah. I, 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 I was scarred by my trip there when I, when I went there a couple of years ago for, for the whiteout game against Ohio State. Once there, unbelievable. Like, the, the, the atmosphere, the, the fan, um, like, energy and excitement. The resources that they have, the alumni network, there are some ridiculous uh, advantages that they have at Penn State. So I don't know, maybe those outweigh the that geographical issue. But like it, it like I just the hotel I stayed in was like an hour outside of State College. Like it was just a uh, you know, and you did no real air, like there's an airport in State College, but I don't know, there's not a lot of flights flying into it. And so I, I just given where it's located in Central Pennsylvania. You know the talent around it. I just I, I that they're they're borderline for me. So that's fair. I also would would say the Hokies are also really hard to get to. Not quite as difficult to get to as Penn State is, but, but they're I, also. Been, do, do you would you, in your opinion, is Virginia's like driving footprint more is Blacksburg's like four hour driving radius more talented than Penn State's. Maybe that's not, I, but I'm, I envision it as it is. I got to look at a map and make sure that's a, that's a fair yeah. assessment, but I feel let me, like let it me is. pull up the map here just, just so I can kind of draw a little four hour circle of driving around here. Uh, but I, I, I like where you're going with this. I, I, I think you're right. Um, but there's also some pretty big metropolitan areas that I think are within four hours of, of state college. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I could be wrong uh, about that, which is why luckily we well, have Google. I'm looking this up too. All right. So you've got like, you're which up, one are you looking up? Are you looking at Penn State or looking up UVA? I'm looking or, up uh, B Tech. I'm looking up Virginia Tech. 
right, I'll, I'll look up curious. So Virginia Tech, you got you're in the like the DMVs right up the road. You got Cincinnati to the to the west. You can get down to Charlotte to your to the south. Um, it's not exactly you know you kind of you can kind of go north or south there. Um, but it's probably it's probably still hard to recruit nationally there. I, I think it definitely is. So. You know, Philly is, is easily a four-hour drive to Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh is is, is a pretty reasonable drive to State College. Um, Baltimore and the D.C. area is a fairly – I wonder if that's a four-hour drive. I would think so, but Baltimore State College, Pennsylvania is, yeah, uh, three hours and 15 minutes. So I mean, four-hour drive is is pretty reasonable. Um, because if a family leaves their house at, at 7 a.m., they're on your college campus at 11, okay, they, they can spend four, five, six hours there. They leave at five, they're still home by nine. You don't necessarily have to hotel it. That, that's why coaches traditionally have used the kind of four-hour rule because that, that's a day trip. Um, and, you know, for a lot of these lower-income families, hotel is a fairly big deal, right? Uh, you know, it's, just, it's more money to the trip and, you know, gas money. Uh, the the expensive actually driving somewhere, I I think because so much of that four hours around Virginia Tech is like national forest, West Virginia, very country, not a lot of people. You know what I mean? I yeah. I think four hour might be better for for State College. This fair, you may be right, but I don't think it's huge because if you look at north of State College, there's nothing, man. I mean, it's the Allegheny National Forest. I'm having to zoom in a lot on Google Maps just to find another city to pop up. <laughs> like it shows Buffalo, but that's going to be probably six, six and a half hours away. And there's not that much talent in Buffalo, New York. Uh, I mean, we don't rank a whole lot of kids from Bradford, Pennsylvania, or Wellsboro, or Montoursville. At this point, I could probably make up cities in Pennsylvania to see if Barton will not along to see it. If, <laughs> like, uh, how about Cowdersport or the uh, uh, Susquehannock? Susquehannock National Forest is directly north of State College. Um, so both of these schools definitely have an issue of, you know, kind of like Tallahassee School I'm very familiar with. There's not a whole lot of kids who live in the Gulf of Mexico. And that's very much included in, in their four-hour radius there, um, d- down, down there. So they, they all kind of have surrounding talent issues. Who are some jobs that, in your mind, are either underrated or overrated, and why? Uh, I'll give you a couple underrated. Um, Cincinnati is a, is, a, is a good job. Otherwise, Luke Fickle would be gone by now. Uh, I mean, think about the coaches that have come through there, whether it's Brian Kelly, Butch Jones, Luke Fickle, um, Tommy Tuberville failed there, but Tommy Tuberville was going to fail anywhere probably at that point in his career. Um, So that's just, I mean, that's a group of five job that you can sort of stick with um, and, 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 and win there and you've got resources and you've got recruiting base. And so, I think that's a good job. I think Baylor is a good job. You're in Texas. You can you can evaluate the way you want to. You you don't have to get in the arms race with Texas and A and M and Oklahoma for the five stars. 
you can develop those guys. Um, you've got academics that you can sell, but it's not so restrictive that you can't get guys in. Uh, they actually want to win there. I mean, they, they kind of want to win in every sport. Like they've, they've, they've put resources into basketball and they put resources into football. They got a nice stadium, all that sort of stuff. So I think Baylor is, is, is a good job. This is a home, this is going to be very homerish what I say here, but like, I think Vanderbilt is a good job. I think it is because think about like the last, they've had three coaches since 2002, basically. I mean, they had an interim coach. Bobby Johnson retired there after going like playing like eight years there, had a one seven win season. And he's like a legend and is on the college football playoff committee, right? You got James Franklin who won nine games there two years, went three straight bowls and got a head job at Penn state. And you got Derek Mason that's gone, you know, seven years without a winning season. And so I, 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 I like, if you want to win national titles, yeah, that's a tough place, but you can live in a great city. You can, you have a great recruiting base. You have, uh, you have reasonable expectations. And I think if you, if you kind of, position yourself the right way you can you can recruit some really good players there so um i think that's a that's a better job than it gets credit for um but that's that that could be very much a homer pick well it can be a homer pick and be right Uh, i think the big thing there that you mentioned is the patience element right and the biggest thing that i think creates underrated and overrated jobs is expectations relative to resources and the speed that those expectations are expected to be met. Um, we've talked about the Kentucky thing here. I think Kentucky is yeah, that was another one I had kind of arguably the best job in the SEC among the non-national title contenders because they have actually they've put their money where their mouth is. They say, Mark Stoops, you win seven, you win seven games in a year, we automatically extend your contract by one year and give you the percentage bump too. If you win 10, you get an automatic two-year extension on top of that. So Kentucky has said, hey, we've defined what success here is at Kentucky. We don't expect you to beat Florida and Georgia and all that kind of stuff. Now, they did make a move at offensive coordinator probably because they want to sell some tickets and uh, being a, the worst throw-in team in the SEC a couple of years running is tough. And we, we discussed that when you know, Eddie Grand got let go probably four or five episodes now. Uh, so I, I have that one as, as an underrated job. I agree with you on, on Baylor and a couple of those other ones. I, I think Oklahoma State is kind of an underrated job. I mean, Mike Gundy, the amount of jobs he has flirted with and not left for tells me that that's probably a pretty good place to work overall and that they haven't fired him for doing so. You know, basically, look, they're cool with with they're cool with you doing your own thing there. And, and it seems like they're they're pretty patient. It's been probably four years now since their AD made the comments about Mike Gundy's recruiting, and I haven't heard anything more about that from him. Um, now jobs that I think are, you can, by the way, you can be a good job and still be an overrated job. I I think we should point that out. Like Miami is a good job. It's also a job in which they won basically all the games they were expected to win this year for the first time in quite a while that they didn't really have any huge letdown games in terms of the result. Now getting blown the hell out by UNC was a letdown, but it's also a COVID year, man. They've had a bunch of guys Mm -hmm. out and practice has been weird. But their expectations down there are, are national title. And I'm not convinced that's super realistic unless you get like a Trevor Lawrence type type QB, given their, their commitment and resources and what they pay. I think Texas is probably a bit of an overrated job. 
everybody says it's an awesome job, but yet they've won, what, two conference titles in the last two decades? Now, one of them was a natty, but that's that's expectations that don't necessarily match up. Um, Tennessee and Nebraska are probably also, you know, two interesting jobs. And I, I had thought about this. If Chris Winkie does not break his neck, Tennessee almost certainly does not win the national title because they were pretty close in, in that game in which they, you know, got to face the backup to the Heisman Trophy winner. Does Tennessee have more realistic expectations if Fulmer does not win that title that year with T. Martin? That's a good point. They probably do. I think I mean, it's a better job if they if they didn't win it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but because they got the hardware 20, 21 years ago, you know, like now I think they think they can get back there. And that was a very unique circumstance in time. I mean, Saban was not really in the league at that point and like not not in the, the dominant fashion that you know that he would come to be. Um, you know, Georgia was still screwing around. They had not hired uh I don't think they had hired Rick at that point yet. So, you know, Florida was Spurrier, but kind of at the point when Spurrier was starting to not like recruiting anymore, it was just a very unique point in time. So I, I think Tennessee is a bit of an overrated job, addition, additionally with all the, you know, behind the scenes stuff there that their coaching search was an absolute disaster. And you basically had a coup uh, that resulted in a new AT. Um, and in Nebraska, a little bit too. I'll, I'll go ahead and give you guys a bit of a preview on this. I'm working on a project that says that AD should have more patience, not less, in the early signing period era. Because basically all these classes that these new coaches sign, unless they're an internal hire, are freaking disasters. Okay, I'm going to read you off this real fast. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to share all the data because I don't want somebody to aggregate my, my podcast comments and turn that into an article before I have time to turn yeah, it out. story. Yeah. All right. How many guys from your first class that you signed, so your short season class, are still on your roster. And I'm including opt-outs in this as being on the roster because they're technically still on the roster. Like, they haven't left. And if you went to the NFL early, I still counted you as being on the roster for this. And if you're a JUCO with two, you know, two to play two, I counted you as still being okay because that's like, you know, your eligibility was fulfilled. All right, so you're giving some benefits of the doubt here. Yeah, this is okay. I'm trying to give all the benefits of the doubt. Okay. FSU, 9 of 21. Florida, 11 of 20. These are still on the roster. Still on the roster yeah. for, okay. for this season. Texas A&M, 9 of 23. Nebraska, 10 of 25. I mean, dude. Now, UCLA, interestingly, 21 of 27. Kind of funky there, which suggests they might be a little bit better team next year than than we think. Yeah. Nebraska, man, has made a real effort to recruit Florida under Scott Frost and and, and some of these other states. And the guys they signed out of these states, a ton of them are gone. Like their attrition has been sky high, so I'm going to go ahead and put Nebraska as a bit of an overrated job uh, on, on this list as well. Yeah, uh, this is the Scott Frost stuff has shook me because I really thought that was a great hire, and it still might be. I mean, let's let's not let pull the ripcord on it just yet, but it but it has been evident that it is a. I mean, it's just because he was at Oregon and UCF, and he's won a lot of games, and he's uh. A, uh, iconic sort of name for that program doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to automatically be able to sort of steal the guys that other people want out of a place like Florida. And so I still think the the geographic challenges remain. The modern landscape is is there in which everyone has national visibility 
not just Nebraska, who's who's the only team playing on national television every weekend. Like, um, so I I I'm I agree. I think um I think Nebraska is suddenly the the ceiling appears to be much lower than than it once was. By the way, there is a big difference. I don't want to give away the whole piece. There is a big difference in attrition levels between the guys who were hired from outside the program and their first transition classes and the guys who were internal hires. So like Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day, Mario Cristobal, those dudes have not had this level of attrition. And my theory on this is that I think that they knew who they were getting and knew who they wanted to get. And they already had relationships with these guys because they were already recruiting them. A lot of times these these staffs, when they first get there, they're scrambling to put together that first class. And with the early signing period, it has kind of microwaved that timetable in which you have to meet these dudes. So, I, I mean, and sometimes these four stars you get are four-star physical talents, but they're available to you for a reason and not a good reason, a bad reason. And they end up washing out of your program. And you look back as a staff and you say, oh, hmm. Well, I guess there was probably a reason we were able to get that kid despite only being here for 10 days. Yeah, don't, yeah. Yeah, there's a mistake there if you just are trying to get a few four stars in the boat to make your rankings look good. That's not, I think that ain't, that ain't it. That's, That's going to be a problem down the road. Yeah, so if I'm an AD, I'm looking at these numbers and I'm saying, man, if I'm making a new hire and I, I'm not making an internal promotion, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a legit four to five year process because your, yeah. first, your first class, you're probably not going to get a damn thing from. Florida? 15 of their 22 starters are from the high school classes of 16 and 17. You believe that? Only seven of the guys who start for them were signed out of were signed by Mullen out of high school. Wow. Like that's pretty shocking. Yeah. Um, but I think it shows how how tough this eval process is and it, with this updated timetable. For sure. Um, which is way off the rails for that question, but you know, sometimes we do that. Uh, uh let's see. Let me cool take the next kid. one here. Yeah, take take uh, take cool kids zero one two three mailbag question. As a BC fan, Jeff Halfley has me ex- as excited as I've been since Matt Ryan left campus. Between seeing the defense improve dramatically as well as building out the off field staff and hiring promising assistants, I see things moving in the right direction. Recruiting is picking up, especially some of the early things I'm seeing and hearing about 2022. My question is, how much progress is possible for a program like BC? Our last period of relative success feels like such a different era in college football, but I've never seen the level of commitment from a school that I'm seeing now, from the school that I'm seeing now. Obviously, being in the Atlantic Division caps things, but uh, but it's hoping for eight or nine wins a year reasonable. So just to remind the audience that the the like last era of success for BC was pretty much the, what, Jeff Jagosinski, uh First year, Frank Spaziani, uh, you know, last year or last two years of Tom O'Brien there, they went uh, nine and three and oh four, uh, nine and three and oh five, ten and three and oh six, eleven and three and oh seven, nine and five in oh eight. Um, so I kind of want to tackle this in two ways. First, I want to tackle this with what is possible for BC if BC does that, controls its own controllables. Because I think there's a certain number there, and then I think there's a certain thing that's possible if some other programs around them sort of fall apart, right? You have to recall that the era in which BC was winning nine or ten games a year, yes, it was in the ACC, but that was in the very latter years of the Bobby Bowden era in which Florida State was kind of a mess, and Louisville had not yet joined the league in that division. 
and Clemson did not yet have Dabo Swinney Cook in there. It was the latter years of Tommy Bowden who would be fired. Uh, Miami was also going through the latter part of the Larry Coker years, uh, which did not go very well once he kind of ran out of Butch Davis's players. And I believe 07 was probably Randy Shannon's first year, I think, if I recall. So I think Jeff Hadley's doing an awesome job. I know in our recruiting rankings meetings, we've noted, man, look at look at this kid. BC, BC was one of the first offers there. Look, BC offered this kid first, that or one of the early ones on there. They were very high on, was it Trevin Wallace, the, the linebacker? They were one of the first ones on him. Yep. They have committed. Yeah. So I think they're doing a great job of player evaluation. They've clearly hit on the quarterback position with the transfer. But it's still BC. And your recruiting is probably not going to be better than about fifth in the ACC, even if you are recruiting your butts off. I think consistent, I think you know, controlling your controllables, even if the teams around you are good, I think you can win seven games at BC. Eight or nine consistently, I think, requires teams around you faltering. So if that's not Clemson faltering, that's Louisville taking a step back. That's NC State not doing what they did this year under Dave Doran. That's you know Florida State not improving under Mike Norvell. There's too many programs that if you're operating at peak efficiency and they're operating at peak efficiency, that they're going to have better players than you are that are on your schedule every year. That's that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, um, uh, Adazio was just like a perennial six, six and six, seven and five coach. Uh, and I think Adazio is a competent, capable coach, but I don't think he's like a great coach. And so the idea that Jeff Halfley can be like a great coach and potentially level that program up to eight wins, nine wins sometimes, absolutely. I think that that's reasonable. I think the the other thing that's encouraging with Jeff Halfley, first of all, I think Jeff Halfley is a, I think he's a modern coach in the sense of he understands the way you have to cultivate a roster, the way you have to build meaningful relationships. Um, I think he is a coach that can maintain continuity on his coaching staff and stability because, because he's that kind of coach. I think he is a coach that will be able to, and look, I think he already has uh, built a strong staff. And again, I think that goes back to just sort of the, the way he approaches things and the ability to recruit and sustain talent, you know, on the, uh, within the, the, the football building. Um, and so, yeah, I think all those things have me very optimistic about Boston College, and I acknowledge that there probably is a, a fairly hard ceiling on it. Um, but, you know, I, I Michigan's always dipping into New England to try to recruit these, you know, land these uh, you know, Don Brown talents. Um, and I don't see any reason why Boston College can't start being the team that those guys want to go to, A, and B, being able to find their sweet spots in the Atlanta area or Georgia or wherever and, um, and pulling the right guys up. But I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about Jeff Halfley. Ditto. I, I guess I'll close it. Eight wins a year. is probably a good, you know, good goal. Nine wins a year. There's a big difference between eight and nine. Like that eight and nine is a, that's a really big difference. Just as kind of, there's a, a difference between the teams that managed to win three and the teams that only win, you know, one or two. Um, like like Rutgers this year. Uh, so 73 Mustang asks us, hey guys, 
love the show. Been listening since the summer, and it's been maybe a much smarter college ball fan this fall. Thanks. Uh, my, my question has to do with Demarcus Bowman transferring to UF. I know a little late for this question. But with the criticism that Mullen has taken from recruiting, I'm wondering how much different the UF 2020 class would be talked about if Bowman signed in December. Would it have been a top five class, and would it have shifted some of the narrative on Mullen's recruiting and the talent gap with Georgia? Hmm. Like that's your wheelhouse, bud. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to actually pull this up. Can we still class calculator a prior class? I think so. Let me see if I can play with our tool here. I've actually never tried to do this, but I'm I'm going to. You going to, to a Florida class? I am. I'm going to put Bowman in the 2020 Florida class. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So I'm calculating. If you put Bowman in the Florida 2020 class, they actually move up seven points. They go from 273 to 281.6. And I'm going to go to team rankings and pull that up. 281.6 would not have put Florida in the top five. It would have made them number seven instead of instead of number nine where they were. Uh, so I think there's a couple ways we can take this question. Number one is the value of a transfer. For instance, we, we had this discussion early in, in February or whenever we started this podcast, probably what, April, May, when we were doing the transfer class rankings. And for the most part, you have to look at transfers with a bit of a skeptical eye because usually they're not transferring for reasons that make them better players. Now, that's different if it's a grad transfer who has proven his, his worth and he's looking to transfer out. You know, Maybe a guy at Arkansas State is looking to transfer to Georgia or something like that. But generally, transfers are going to be rated lower when they hit the portal than they were out of high school, simply because if you're transferring, it, you have to take into account as an evaluator the fact that this didn't work out for a reason. And if you look at the track record of guys who were at Clemson and transfer elsewhere, it's not great, right? Like, if you don't work out at Clemson, more often than not, you don't work out elsewhere. That's not to say DeMarcus Bowman won't work out at Florida. I don't know why he transferred. It could have been homesickness. Let's just go with that. Like, would you still consider him a five-star type transfer? He's only one year removed from whatever we rated him. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't on rankings council last year, but it's interesting. What, what, like, what, what do you think about about the Bowman transfer there? Honestly, if I had to re-rank right now, um, or like rank him as a transfer, our five-star rating starts at ninety-eight. I, I would probably dock him down to like a ninety-seven. Um, I still think his talent is, is tremendous, but he, he wasn't like part, I think, I do think part of the reason he transferred, like he wouldn't get on the field as much as he wanted to. Um, and, and that doesn't like, that's not atypical. I mean, B. John Robinson didn't get on the field in the early part of the year either for Texas. And look what he's done in the Alamo bowl. Once he like finally, got the confidence of the coaching staff to get a full workload. So I don't mean to say that as a somehow dismissive of what DeMarcus Bowman will be, but I think it's, it's our first little hint and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like banging on the door for playing time necessarily. So uh, that said, I think it's, it's, it doesn't change necessarily the narrative of what Dan Mullen has to do on the recruiting trail, right? To get 
a transfer and DeMarcus Justin Shorter, whoever it is, that's that can help valuable. And maybe those guys are first round picks eventually, which is great. But it doesn't change what is going to be asked of Dan Mullen to be in the national title contention from a recruiting standpoint. Um, like you still have to be able to win head to head battles with Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson. And winning a head to head battle for a high school recruit is different than accepting a transfer from somebody, someone that had a situation that wasn't ideal uh, for whatever reason. So yeah, it makes them more talented. Like it makes that roster more talented, but it doesn't, it still doesn't answer the question that needs to be asked of Dan Mullen in terms of elevating Florida from on the cusp of college football playoff contention to national title. I, I agree with that. Um, I do think eventually, and I don't know when this happens, but I do think as an industry, we will combine rank transfers and mm-hmm. recruits in the same class and just call it like the incoming player ratings or, or the new player rankings. Because some of these schools are using five, six, seven, eight spots a year on transfers. And if you're going to use 35% of your available scholarships on transfers, then if we're just looking at the high school rankings, and for now, I think the high school rankings as a way to evaluate team recruiting is, is very accurate. Uh, but if if the sport trends more that way to where a significant portion of your teams are, are using you know, 20, 30% of their available incoming scholarships on transfers, then I think in order to capture the entire picture, we need to, we need to consider that more. And Dan Mullen has done a really nice job in the portal. It, it is a it's a way to supplement some recruiting shortcomings, as you said. It's not, in my opinion, a one-for-one substitute. I want to get a guy who's a stud in my program, into my culture from day one. This is very much the Dabo approach. You know, and granted, this is kind of a, a privileged college football approach. Like if you're a, an awesome team, you can afford to do that. If you're not, you, you may need to take some more transfers. I don't think Bama has a whole lot of room for transfers this year because they have 26 guys in their class, and, and if, if they get JT, they'll have 27. Uh, but that, that's just something to look at. By the way, with, with all this is not a question we got, but I was thinking about this. If you're an NFL team, would you rather have Urban Meyer or Dan Mullen as your coach? Dan Mullen, probably. I think so, because he he does he's much more proven as far as winning without a talent advantage. Yeah, and he's a he is the offensive mind. And Urban Meyer is his success has been built on this um CEO executive approach to uh, motivation and recruiting intensity and, you know, daily competition. And that, not that those things won't translate or can't translate in the NFL, but it, th- those feel like principles that build college football success more so than NFL success to me. Like not that again, not that they're not applicable, but they are like, they are exactly how you build college football success. And I think the recipe is, is just tweaked a little bit in the NFL and Dan Mullen, all these things we're talking about him with, like, you don't have to worry about that stuff in the NFL. Like I, I, I think Dan Mullen would be potentially like one of the better college football hires to, to, to make that jump. Uh, I think Matt rule has got a chance to be a good one there. Um, but like, I don't know, like, Dan Mullen versus Lincoln Riley as a like everyone's talking about Lincoln Riley. I'm I'm not 
I'm not convinced Dan Mullen wouldn't be the, the more appealing candidate. I, I agree. I mean, he, he's shown great versatility and adapting to his talent. And I, if I'm in the NFL, I want guys who succeed without the talent advantage because you can't take your recruiting ability to the NFL. And Meyer has always had, like, that's been the far and away the best thing he does is recruit talent by far. I mean, he, he doesn't call plays. He never has. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then when we return, we got a couple more questions to hit, and then we will go ahead and get out of here. All right, we're back on Barton and Bud. Appreciate you dropping us that five-star review on Apple Podcast while we were on break. Uh, Barton, our next question comes from Chief Dog Ten, who asks uh, which quarterback should come back to avoid this unusually strong quarterback class in the draft, which of course uh, includes Trevor Lawrence, most like Zach Wilson, probably Justin Fields. I, I assume. Yeah, right. I mean, who are some guys you think who should come back who maybe would consider turning pro in a normal year who might be able to elevate their stock just by you know having a less stacked field next year? Well, right, or a guy that would be forced to go pro in a normal year but has the option now to get that initial additional year of eligibility due to the COVID waivers. Um, so I kind of dug around. Like there's a, And I actually, I think Derek King is making a smart decision. If he actually wants to play quarterback in college, Derek King... Miami has announced he is coming back, which was a little bit of a surprise to me. I just assumed uh, at this point, you are what you are. Um, you, you know, if you want to play quarterback, you're still an undersized quarterback, still going to be a, a long shot for, for these NFL guys that want the, the prototypes. But with all that other crew out of the way next year, with coming back to a good Miami team with Rhett Lashley still there, the offensive coordinator, uh, you know he he'll have a chance, and again the the media landscape will be different. COVID the COVID narrative will be out of the way. People will just be focused on the ball a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I think he's got a chance to to up his stock a little bit, and it doesn't mean he's going to be a first round pick, but at least make some moves. So I, I I'm I'm I was surprised and and sort of pleased to see the Derek King news. Some of these other guys whatever, like if they want to come back, come back and play another year because it's fun and football, college football is fun. And, but I don't know that their stock is going to change a whole lot. Like a Sam Ellinger, like oh, your stock is what it is. Or um, I don't know who else would be out there, but the, the one guy that, that comes to mind, who's not going to be a first round pick who I don't, I have, actually have no idea where this guy would be slotted, um, but would absolutely be leaving otherwise is is Kellen Mond. And I feel like Kellen Mond because he ha is he has some very seductive quarterback traits. He has a lot of things that NFL personnel people are going to be excited about on the surface. And he's been maddeningly inconsistent throughout his career. He's had a solid year this year. Um not always been the prettiest, but he has had a solid year, his best year yet. I would assume. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I got to believe this is his best year yet. Um, if he comes back, because he's going to be a little bit more, quote, toolsy than some of the other guys that he would be compared against, which isn't the case this year necessarily. Um, if he has another year of improvement under Jimbo Fisher, I think it would make a lot of sense for Kellen to come back. And man, what if, what that'd be great for Texas A&M. Maybe Haynes King is the answer there. And he's the next up. He's the true freshman this year. 
but that's going to, that's still a team that returns a lot of talent. They'll have questions at the quarterback position if Kellen Mond is gone. And if he comes back and settles those, those questions, then, you know, maybe you got an AM team that's contending for the playoffs and maybe Kellen Mond with Fields and Wilson and Lance and Lawrence out of the way. I, I mean, he certainly has a, an elite ceiling. So I, I would be very intrigued by the narrative around Kellen Mond next fall. If he came back. I, I like that. Um, couple are, and, and I have a similar one in, in mind here. So Kellen Mond, he lost Osmond to opt out. They lost what Brown to injury. They lost another guy to injury. That, that receiving core for A&M didn't scare anybody. They have some young talent there. Mond could absolutely put up some better numbers and some more explosive numbers. I think even in Jimbo's offense, which compared to the rest of college football has, has lagged behind now in recent years in explosiveness. Um, I think him coming back would make a whole lot of sense. He, his year this year was good, but you know, not, not great. 7.6 per attempt sounds nice, but you got Mac Jones throwing for 11.4 per attempt. Mac Corral throwing 10, six an attempt. I mean, um, seven, six an attempt just doesn't really, doesn't really scare people. Here's another one for you, by the way, a guy who had a similar issue where you lost a guy to the draft in Chase Claypool. Then you had the dudes who were expected to be receivers got hurt, right? I mean, their starters were going to be Kevin Austin and Braden Lindsey. We just did the podcast on how Nick Saban's probably not that scared of Alabama because or of, of Notre Dame because Notre Dame's receivers don't scare anybody. And he's like, all right, Josh, Joe, Pat Sertan. Awesome job. Go out there, play play singles for about seventy five percent of these snaps, and we're just gonna, you know, be able to load the box and still play, some, you know, some cover three and not not allow explosive plays and blah 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 blah. If Notre Dame has better receivers next year, I could see Ian Book coming back the second year in the Tommy Reese offense and and maybe improving. I, I right now I don't know that he's an NFL guy. Uh, I think he's not is. a draftable I, dude. I, I I I disagree with that. I do think he is a. I think he's like a fifth. Like a like a fifth 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 sixth kind of guy, maybe fourth. Like I just, I do think he is, but and I could be wrong, but that's that's that would be my expectation. But I don't disagree with your point. Like it's kind of interesting, you know. To I mean, I feel like he's been in college football forever already. If he were to come back again for another season, but you're right. I mean, I thought Ian Book was at his ceiling last year. I thought Ian Book was what he was, and this year he has been better. And I and I still kind of think he's at his ceiling this year. You know, he's a maybe a late round draftable guy. He could make a roster. He could be a career backup or a backup for six years or something like that. Um, and so go ahead and get your earning power now. Get out there and get, get cash a few checks. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe his ceiling. Maybe he's got a little more to go. Just like I, he surprised me this year by getting a little bit better. If he gets a little better next year, has some more options to throw to. Maybe he's a third rounder. Maybe he's a second. I don't know. Like he, he's so. I, I think that's an interesting one. I, I kind of thought about that as well. Um, it's funny to think about him coming back again, but I, I, it, it, it'll be an interesting choice for him. I've got a couple, couple more I want to throw out here. Uh, Davis Mills is a dude who I think has some talent. Stanford had such a disjointed year this year. They weren't even allowed to practice. Is this with eligible, is it, would this be his last year otherwise? So he's technically a senior. So okay. yeah, he'd be using his his COVID senior according to CFBStats.com. This is where I'm looking off. I just yeah. kind of sorted it by yards yeah. per attempt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I have a, a, an interesting comparison I want to throw throw by you. 
So in 2000 and I think it was 2010, NC State had this guy named Mike Glennon. And they thought he was the heir apparent, and they knew they were going to get multiple years out of him, and they thought he was going to be pretty damn good. And ultimately, they were right. He was pretty damn good. And he ended up starting for the Bucks for a while in the NFL. But they kind of pushed out this guy named Russell Wilson, right? And I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm looking at the guy who was number one in the country in yards per attempt, who is listed as a redshirt junior, who might win the Heisman. I think Mac Jones needs to go, right? Oh, definitely. Like, I like like he's going to go. There's no real conversation about him coming back and and maybe ha- having you know, having the issue with uh, with Bryce Young, right? Like, has he announced he's going? I have not seen that, but I that would be crazy if he came back, right? Cool. All right, I just want to want to make sure he is he is <laughs> for sure going. Yeah, I mean he's um, he's not going to have a better year next year than this year because he's been that's that's what I'm perfect too. Yeah. Um. You know, Shane Bouchelle, I think probably is he's shown everything he needs to show. Just kind of going down the list here of guys. Kyle Trask, I mean, given that they're not going to have Pitts, Grimes, or Tony next year, probably needs to get you know taken well, on so down. He's the road. like Mac Jones, too. It's like what 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 more can you do? Like you right. you are what you are, and you had a damn near perfect season. So exactly. Um, other guys. Brady White, I mean, he, if he doesn't go now, like he he's announced draw he's Social done. Security. I think he announced he's done it at, at uh, Memphis. I don't know what that means. I guess it means he's going. But yeah, he's this is like I feel like this is year six with him anyway. So he would be he'd be year seven, I think. He's like about as old as us, dude. I know, <laughs> man. Like Brady White was. I feel like he was well, at the I same elite eleven as like Josh Rosen. Right, he was the Rosen Darnold um, year. So those Wait, guys, he actually was. I was trying to think. Like, I'm pretty sure he was. I said it as a joke almost, but that that might really be true. I'm pretty sure that he was. I'm looking it up right now. Um, he was class of 2015 with Josh Rosen and <laughs> Darnold and Drew Locke and you know these guys that have been in the league for like three or four years now. It seems like that's awesome. Oh man, good question for sure. There. Um, all right, what do we have next year? It's uh. Uh, Marco Franco. Okay. Marco Franco asks thoughts on the overall job Pat Narduzzi has done at Pitt and the future of that program going forward. So I think that Pat Narduzzi is a perfect coach for Pitt. I think that they're tough. I think they're physical. I think they're what a Pitt team needs to look like. I think they are, they they have arrived as a Pat Narduzzi team. I don't think they're ever going to be contending for ACC championships regularly. They're going to get into the game every once in a while when things hit. But um, I think that's that's great. I think he's a great fit. I think he fits the culture. I think he fits the tone of the program. Tough, hard-nosed, blue-collar type of guy. Defensive coordinator. They're going to play good defense. They're going to be nasty. Um, and and yet I don't like I don't I don't know that they're ever going to be getting national titles there. But that's okay. I don't think every program has to has to sort of be looking for national titles. So I'm I'm with it, man. Pat Narduzzi has had a winning record in the ACC in three of his five seasons, and another one of his, his five seasons he went uh, four and four. What did they do this year? They losing record by a little bit, I think. 
Yeah, I don't know. I know they went six and five. Yeah. And I mean, so that's obviously five and five in the league. So he has had a 500 or better record in the ACC five of six years. And this year he did it with an injury to Kenny Pickett, who was playing, you know, very well. They've developed players well. I think they recruit to their scheme well. And um, like you said, they're tough. I, I don't know what more you want. I mean, it, yeah. it, Pitt under Pat Narduzzi, I think, is much closer to its ceiling than Pitt's floor, in my opinion. I mean, you hire the wrong coach at Pitt, you could easily easily go three and five in the league consistently. Agreed. Just in, in, in my opinion there. There's enough teams guy. in it. I think you found yeah. your guy at Pitt. Yeah, apparently, uh, apparently some people there are not super happy. Really? I, I, I just... Again, it's what we got back to with expectations. Like, what what more do you want? This is kind yeah. of the classic Glenn Mason thing when Minnesota got tired of going, you know, eight and four, nine and three. You're freaking Minnesota, man. Like, what, what are we doing? Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, got to capitalize on that St. Paul and Minneapolis town a little better, I guess. All right. Uh, I think this Larry Scott one's going to take way too long, and I really don't know how they're going to get Larry Scott. I don't out. know how to answer that question, <laughs> anyways. There's a question about getting Larry Scott out as the Pac-12 commissioner and uh, Conley World. We'll save that one for another day. Uh, um, do you want to finish on um, Andrew Rubin? Yeah, I, I think that like, and we we kind of tackled this in the last show. Like, I'm not convinced that an 18 playoff drastically increases the odds that other teams will win the playoff. We still have the issue in college football of, you know, my worry at least of the sport becoming too regional. And if it just is entirely regional forever, it dies, right? Like we need to make sure this sport maintains some level of national interest. We actually talked about this two episodes ago, pretty in length or pretty at length. But could it, could an 18 playoff even out recruiting? Andrew wants to know and get the second tier programs closer to the top ones. I don't see a way that it would hurt. To be able to say, "Hey, we made the playoff," even if you even if you get, you know, drug, it still helps to be able to say you made it. So I think the answer is yeah. Agreed. Am I missing I think, something there? I think that the putting a putting a banner or a flag up at your stadium that said "Playoff 2022," like that might get you might get you a recruit or two. It doesn't matter. You got beat forty five to ten. You don't have to put that on the banner. Say we've gotten the playoffs. That's something. I think that that's. I mean, it's just like saying playoff. Like you see it on the resume for. Like even if you are the perennial Group of Five team, um, that gives you opportunity. I think you know even if you are the perennial Pac-12 team, like you're on that stage, you're in that program, you're in that you're in that setting. If you get pounded a couple times, whatever. Like you're 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 pitching your kids and you got a chance to play for a national title. I, I, I think it would be um, the, the best teams are still going to get the best players. Like that doesn't change, but uh, I think you can make a case a little bit more to maybe stay at home or, Hey, this, this, this opportunity is here for you. We, we got a chance to play for the playoffs, you know, come help us take the next step or whatever. Like I, I do think that that promise can be compelling. The comparison here also might be, Think about the recruiting boost it is for some of these programs that make the NCAA tournament in basketball, right? They don't win it, but it's something to be say, hey, we made the tournament. We made the tournament three of the last four years. 
people don't don't say what'd you do in the tournament they say oh cool man like this is a tournament team that's that's a cool thing mm-hmm. let's yeah. let's let's end here uh on the on the ted g question and I, I think there's a broader question to be asked here he says isn't it reasonable to expect west virginia to be number three in the big 12 every year based on its history and the history of other programs and we've discussed on this show Rutgers, not today's episode, but prior, you know, Rutgers talk, Miami talk, Boston College talk today, Pitt talk today. And I really think that there's a consistent theme among the questions we get of fans whose teams were involved in conference expansion over the last 10 to 15 years. And that is a lack of contextualization as to their success that they achieved and Louisville as well in here, right? that they achieved in the latter years of those watered down leagues as schools started to get kind of picked off, right? You know, Louisville winning the big East under Charlie strong and, and not having that same success coming over to the ACC TCU going undefeated in the old mountain West and not being able to do the same thing for the most part in the big 12, same with Utah, although they, they you know, certainly won the pac 12 or come close to doing, I believe. Um, Ted asks, isn't it reasonable to expect West Virginia to be number three in the Big 12 every year based on its history and the history of their programs? I I, I don't see that, personally. Um, I think a lot of the West Virginia success they had under Rich Rod had to do with who they were playing on an annual basis. They had good talent, but number three just seems a little high to me, right? I, I, as an expectation, to, am I, am I, are you seeing what I'm seeing there? Well, I can't really peg West Virginia. I got a hard time with that one because I do. I like. I, I still think it's um, it's a bit out of place geographically. It's playing outside of its footprint, um, and I mean, I don't know. Like, what's can, Kansas State's resume might be better equipped to be slotted in the third spot. Like, I, I mean, the um, I I don't I. That's a hard one for me. I, I I think West Virginia can be the third best team in the conference. I think that they uh, have probably a higher ceiling than um, than maybe it's acknowledged sometimes. But I don't the expectation thing. I don't know, man. I think if you're getting if you're third third there every year, like that's a that's a you're 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 punching above your weight. I feel like you're you're exceeding expectations. It's a possibility, but you're. You know, you're you're accomplishing something that is uh, a, a tall ask. Top half to me, if you do it consistently, is is success. Right. I mean, almost all of your recruiting is out of state. It's not impossible, but it, it's certainly not easy. Mm-hmm. All right, dude, we're up against it. We have a football recruiting rankings meeting coming up, and uh, we'll go ahead and get to that. We'll get this off to our producer Jordan, and we'll see you guys next week. Later.